tuning in. I actually have some exciting news. I got an email last week from a website that basically specializes in podcasts and like promoting podcasts and different things like that. And this podcast actually made it into the top 17 biohacking podcasts of 2019, which is really cool and very unexpected, especially since I just started a few months ago. And so that was just like such a nice, just like gesture and to hear that people are actually enjoying it and finding it. It's really cool. And what's also exciting is that I am one of two females on that list. So if you are a female and listening to this and you're into biohacking, join and start your own podcast because we really do need more females out there giving point of views and just like talking about the female side of things and how different female health is to male health. So it's nice that at least there's one other woman out there kind of doing the same thing or similar. And then everyone else is male and a lot of them, like most people know. So like Ben Greenfield and Dave Asprey and some other really good biohacking shows that are actually amazing. And I listen to all the time that really inspire me and inspire this show. So thank you for that shout out. That was really nice. So on the podcast today, we have Erica Strobe, and she is a life coach and personal trainer and does all sorts of things, but mainly specializes in anxiety and mental health. This episode is actually super packed with information about healing anxiety and guilt and shame and how to kind of navigate it every day. And then bring in nutrition and certain exercises that can really help with it and help heal it and help you move on from it. So it was really good talking to her. She knows a lot and just really provides a lot of perspective on like what she sees in her practice and how society shapes anxiety for people and especially how it shapes anxiety for women and how women actually deal with it very differently than men. So It was really cool talking to her. This episode's great. I hope you get a lot out of it. And I look forward to having you back next week. Thanks. Hi, Erica. I'm so excited to have you on the show today, the podcast, the show, whatever it's been called lately. I would love for you to dive into everything that you know about anxiety and how you got here to where you are right now as a life coach and just kind of like your journey towards why you're doing this and how you got here. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me on the show. It's great. And I'm super excited to talk about anxiety, which is kind of funny. But it's one of those topics that I feel like I could just talk about forever. (laughs) So this is really fun to be here. And kind of to start with my story, and my health and fitness story It really, you know, it started in childhood. I grew up around sports. I was always a very active physical person. So it was never the physical body that I was lacking, but it wasn't actually till a serious event in my life that happened that I really had to tap into a more holistic mindset of health, that it's not just about your body. And this happened in my early 20s. I actually lost my father and it made me pretty much question everything that I knew. And that's also when I started having massive anxiety attacks that seemed to have come out of nowhere. And from that point in time, I've always been a seeker and not really one to tolerate suffering or 
staying stuck. So I really dove into psychology and finished my undergrad with a degree in psychology and then also got my master's in psychology. And I worked as a therapist for a couple of years interning and collecting hours and doing that whole path. But I found out pretty quickly on that that was not the right path for me. And I dove back into fitness and personal training and yoga and stayed in that space because it felt safer and more familiar for a long time. And then I had a major shift moving from California to New York. And through that transition, I started to feel not aligned and not grounded. And I have a hard time slowing down and tapping into my parasympathetic. And I finally started creating that space for myself in the last year. And it was in that space that the whole idea of wanting to work with women who also shared a similar struggle was born. And from there, I kind of haven't looked back and have just been diving deeper into connecting with women who shared a similar journey as my own. Wow, that's amazing. You have such a holistic background of both like part personal training and the physical part, but then also the mind, the anxiety, the spiritual part of it. So you talk about like tapping into the parasympathetic. What does that mean? And what would you recommend to people who have a difficult time doing the same thing? Yeah. Well, it's really, really important to understand our nervous system. I think a lot of people really are never educated on what that is and that there's different systems at play within our body. And both of those systems can be activated through the body or through the mind. And most people, myself included, lived in the sympathetic nervous system where we're running purely on adrenaline, purely on cortisol, and we're just spinning our wheels, burning the candle at both ends. And often we go through a period of burnout. The opposite kind of end of that is the parasympathetic, and that's that rest and digest place. And knowing that that's available to you is huge, first off, just the awareness of that. And secondly, it really brings us back to our natural rhythm. And we can really slow down, reconnect, and like tap into that inner knowing. And for me to kind of get back into the parasympathetic, I have to turn off from everything. So I, I really remove myself from screens of any kind. So away from social media, away from Netflix. <laughs> and I, what helps me the most is really baths, like bubble baths and reading books and getting outside in nature. I don't know if you're, I'm sure you are, but familiar <laughs> with earthing. But to me, like getting your feet actually planted barefoot on the ground is one of the things that it just resets my entire body and my entire mind almost instantly. Yeah, I definitely understand what you're saying. A part of the program that I'm studying for holistic nutrition is obviously looking at the nervous system. And it's interesting mm -hmm. when you study it because you realize all the things that trigger you to be out of balance with it. So for me, it's overstimulation. And mm -hmm. whether it's like you said, screens, or if it's even caffeine or like that type of stimulation. Also, if I have too much on the go, like too much on my plate, like my to-do list is too long, like anything that is just like way too much, I can feel 
that it's out of balance and I just don't feel normal. And I feel very like my heart rate is higher, go, go, go. And like, there's just no calming. So things like earthing is actually very, very helpful. And like turning everything off and unplugging is great. Yeah, definitely. And you know, sometimes when you go to do that for the first time, or you haven't done that in a while, you actually feel more overwhelmed because it feels so unnatural and you're not used to it. And not doing anything. I think in our culture, we feel a lot of guilt around it and that we should be being more productive. We should always have a to-do list. But if you can kind of work through that initial discomfort and that initial surface chatter, it's like you really tap into a different space and that overwhelm melts away. Yeah. I think it's hard because you're doing nothing essentially, right? So if you use like meditation, I mean, you are doing something and it is making a difference, but you physically are just sitting there. You're not doing anything. And it's very different, exactly like you said, like from what society teaches us about go, go, go and have a full-time job and have a side hustle and go to the gym every day and do this and that, you know, like, yeah, it's pretty intense. So in your practice, what type of issues in the last year or so do you see or trends do you see coming up more often now? Yeah. So who I work with, the women that I work with, it's really specific. I've kind of honed in on the niche that you know I want to personally work with, but the core of it is anxiety. And often within that is panic attacks. And the way that most women that I've worked with kind of find themselves in that anxious state is they've either experienced a pretty significant trauma in their life, or they've experienced a pretty significant loss. So there's trauma and grief that really bring us into this anxious space. And I think it's important to define what I believe anxiety to be. And I see it as blocked energy that's trapped in your body Mm. and an excess of energy. And that energy has to be channeled and has to go somewhere. So the symptoms that I see the most from that is a need to control perfectionism definitely. And struggles around body image and emotional eating. So there's kind of like a flow, you know, there's certain events that lead us to this anxious place and that anxiety really funnels out into specific symptoms. Yeah, I definitely can align with some of those now and in the past. And I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but feeling those things and having anxiety is also just part of being human, right? Like everyone feels it at one point. There's definitely an underlying anxiety that I think just being human, you feel. Absolutely. And I think there's also an underlying anxiety that women feel because of just the messages we're given from society. It's a lot of pressure. I think women are under a lot of pressure and we've gone through so many transitions really to earn our seat at the table, so to speak. Right. So what are the messages that you think that we get now in 2019 and what effect is that having on us? Yeah, I think some of those messages are around our physical appearance. You know, like you need to look a certain way. You need to be pretty, but don't be too pretty because then you're going to have this negative relationship with other women who are going to feel competitive with you or jealous, or it's going to be hard to really develop those feminine relationships. I definitely think that's one of them. I also think really around having a voice. We're 
you know, told to be strong and stand up for ourselves, but only in certain circumstances. So I think those two are the biggest I see. It's really around our physical appearance and our bodies, but also, you know, our intelligence and where and when we should have a voice. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I see that in myself and I see that in my friends and family who are, you know, females going through similar things. So mm-hmm. if you have the ability now after listening to this podcast or even before to recognize that and recognize that you know, it's society pressure and it's the way that we've grown up that makes us think like this and view ourselves as this. Like, how do you break those chains? How do you get out of that? Yeah, I think the first thing with any kind of healing journey is self-awareness. And we can't always control when that self-awareness happens. But the more we start to pay attention and the more we're intentional about our actions and create some consistent habits, the moment of having that aha experience or that awakening is much more likely, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. But how do you differentiate between consistent habits every day and like the letting go of control part? Yeah, that's a really good question. I like to really look at the two words routine and ritual. Mm. And I find that routine, it puts us a bit in a box. And we're just, we kind of get stuck doing something because we should do it. And often we fall out of routine and we don't keep it because it's so rigid. But on the other end, there's the opportunity to create rituals. And I think the ritual is not so much in doing the specific thing every day at the exact same time, but the ritual is creating moments throughout your day to check in with yourself. And when you have that moment of check-in and really hearing what your body and your mind needs, then you can, from there, choose the kind of ritual that you need in that moment. Mm. I like that. I like ritual versus routine. Ritual just sounds nicer in general. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it definitely does. (laughs) Yeah, and easier to maintain. Because I think like it's the routine of... The pressure, honestly, of going to the gym or exercising to have this some sort of body that you think you're supposed to have five days a week, every day at lunch, you got to go. Like, And there's just so much pressure. And then I think guilt comes into it too, right? So if you don't go to the gym, if you don't go to the gym for a week, if you don't meditate, if you eat bad food, whatever it is, right? Like, I think there's guilt that's a huge part of this and shame. So do you see that come up with your clients as well? Definitely. I think guilt and shame is core to most of their experiences, my own as well. Mm -hmm. And shame is so powerful. And a lot of times when we're in shame, we don't even realize we're in shame. And it's really the shame that perpetuates our suffering because the shame is telling us not to put voice to what we're feeling. And it keeps all those feelings in the dark. And if I'm specifically talking about anxiety, One of the things I see across the board, and this was also my experience, was that we don't talk about it. And so every woman that I've worked with and spoken to has said, wow, I've never talked about this before. One of the hardest struggles I have is telling my partner, I feel anxious right now, talking about it in the moment. And that fear and ability to be able to talk about it is completely rooted in shame. Mm. I think shame is hard to recognize. So 
like what are the thoughts that kind of go with it or the symptoms or signs that we know that we're in shame then? Yeah, I've found that for me to identify shame, to get my feet on the ground and understand that that is what I'm experiencing right now is one of the symptoms or experiences I feel in my body is heat. So I'll actually feel like warmth on my face or on my arms. Those are kind of my two trigger identifiers that I'm feeling shame. And also it's the mindfulness piece of catching the thought loop that you're in. So the feedback loop is going to be the same exact loop like a broken record. So the second that you're able to pause and identify which loop is going through your mind, it's very easy then to notice that, oh, this is the shame loop. And then to from there, you make a choice. Am I going to believe this loop or am I going to pause? Am I going to step away from it and know that I don't have to believe everything that I think? Yeah, I think that was a breaking point for me was realizing that you aren't your thoughts. Mm -hmm. Like how many thoughts do you have in a day? I I don't remember. It's like some crazy number, like 50,000 or something. And like understanding that you aren't your thoughts and you can't control your thoughts, all of them anyway, is really profound and really difficult to understand because you think it's just this part of you. If I think it, it must be true, right? Like, and then you go down to shame and guilt and all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, like, what would you recommend to somebody for them to start to understand that, like, not every thought is a part of who they are as a person? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. It really starts when you can be the observer of your thoughts and of your actions. It's when you can create that space between a stimulus and a response. So if some external thing happens that's beyond your control, if you can learn to even start with taking a deep breath before you move right into reaction, I think that is where you really start to become more self-aware because a lot of times that reaction is rooted in being triggered by shame or guilt. And the reaction could really just be a feedback loop in your head. Maybe you're not externally saying something to someone else, but it triggers certain thoughts in your head. So creating a bigger space between the stimulus and the response is really where we start to learn to be the observer as opposed to getting attached to all the thoughts. And I feel like I had a big experience when, I don't know, this was probably about five to 10 years ago. It was, I would say, a pivotal turning point for me was when I realized that the way I had felt about myself or thought about myself was completely my my choice because I lived from this like default mode, almost autopilot and thought that a lot of other women felt the same way about themselves as I felt about me. Like there was no self-love, but I just thought that was default and that's just how it was. So it took, you know, something to shift me out of that and be like, wow, I don't have to accept this. This doesn't have to be the truth. This is just chatter. So it's, you know, identifying that you do have a choice. Yeah. I like that. I heard once, I think it was on a podcast, I heard someone describe it like the observer as picture your like soul or the essence of you, whatever you believe as someone who's like sitting on a chair, a rocking chair in the back of your mind, just watching you. 
and like that's who you are and they're just watching your thoughts and they're watching your actions and all they're saying there's no judgment there's no comments all they say is oh you did that oh that's interesting and that's it and it's just separating between I guess what you're doing and what you're thinking and then like who you are at the very very core level yeah, that's a really great analogy. I love the image of just being on the rocking chair too. It's like soothing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. So that kind of stuck with me because I think meditation is something that I have found that really helps create the observer and helps create space and time between something happening and how I choose to react But like I said, meditation, it's one of those things where I feel like I have to do it and it feels like a routine. So I kind of have this like love-hate relationship with it currently. But aside from meditation, like what other recommendations do you give to people and your clients to help them with this sort of thing? Yeah, I can relate to the meditation piece too. It's a muscle we have to build and I find that sometimes I have to force it as well. But what helps me with the meditation piece is really switching up the kind of meditation I do so it doesn't look the same every day. So maybe some days I'm listening to binary beats while I'm focusing on a mantra. And then other days I might turn on headspace or calm or breathe and listen to a completely guided one. Or one day I might do it in silence and kind of playing with the different ways that you can meditate. That's really helped me be more accepting of having it be a part of my daily ritual, we'll say. But outside of meditating, I definitely am a huge believer in journaling. And that's definitely not reinventing the wheel there. But journaling, especially if you do it in a way that's free writing, so you turn on a, an alarm for, you know, five to 10 minutes, and you do not lift that pen from the paper. So it's just a continuous flow of thought to pen. And it's almost like this brain dump. And usually where you start in the journal that particular day and where you end, it's amazing the transformation that just happens in that 10 minutes. The beginning could even be, I don't want to write today. Why am I writing today? This, you know, I have nothing to say today. And at the end, you may have stumbled upon such a profound insight that you're floored by it. So I think journaling is super powerful. And I also am a huge believer in yoga because it really connects, you know, our, our entire being, it connects breath to movement, body to mind. And I think it's such a powerful experience. And within yoga, it's also very much about opening. And I think a lot of us store most of our blocked emotions in our hips. So having a practice, whether it be going to a yoga studio or a stretching practice, but really learning how to release your hips really helps to start freeing up a lot of that blocked energy. Yeah, I love that. I actually had a planner at one point and it had a brain dump in it as part of it. I think it was every month, but it was very, very helpful. So I think I'm actually going to try doing that today because it's Monday for me today. And I find that Mondays kind of might be the hardest day. and for this type of thing and for a lot of people. So doing these types of practices, I think are very, very helpful on the busier days, which sounds counterintuitive, but it actually makes a difference. And then with the yoga, like absolutely. And I've heard that 
the recent research that is coming out about yoga and why it's so beneficial is not necessarily the movements or the increased flexibility or the benefits on your joints. Like that's all great, but the biggest improvement and the biggest benefit is actually the breathing from it because you're flowing through poses and you're breathing deep into your belly, which is not normal for most people now. That's why you're getting all of these benefits, which is very interesting. And I've had yoga teachers say like, just so you know, it's not about the pose. It's just about you breathing throughout this whole class and like slowing down and realizing your thoughts and just kind of connecting mind with body. So I definitely see that. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. The breathing piece, but also the biggest thing for me and and not so much just about gaining flexibility. But a lot of the stretching and poses within your typical yoga movement release the psoas. And I don't know if you've done any research around the psoas, but the psoas is actually known as our muscle of the soul. And because of our culture is so dominated by sitting and kind of that posture in the hips really tightens up our psoas. And the psoas connects you know, our lower body to our upper body, it supports our posture, our core. It's it's really so important in any movement we do. And when the psoas is so tight, it actually triggers our body that we're in danger. So having a tight psoas is directly related to a whole physiological process of our mind being in the flight, fight, freeze mode. Like our amygdala is triggered based on our psoas being extremely tight. And how would you know if your psoas is too tight? Yeah, I mean, a good, easy test to do, like if you're at home, I always find is if you're standing like lateral in the mirror or like a side view, really noticing the angle that your pelvis is at. So if you notice that your lower back is extra curved, then there's a high likely chance that your psoas is extremely tight because it's pulling basically your spine forward. So I don't know if you can picture that, but that's usually definitely a sign that your psoas is tight. And that's just an easy, like, you can just self-exam and look in the mirror and see that. Yeah. And you can correct that by focusing on, on posture, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, working your glutes, like from a physical standpoint, mm-hmm. is absolutely essential. And that's one of our strongest muscles in the body. And that helps us really ground. So any kind of glute work is amazing. But really, it's the opening of the hips. And you can do that in a lot of different stretches. But my go to is always yoga, because you're also getting the benefits of the breathing. And when we're opening the hips, a lot of times I've had this happen in yoga classes, I will just completely start crying. (laughs) Because something's just getting released. And I'm just like, Oh, my gosh, I'm bawling my eyes out in class right now. (laughs) And I'm not sure why, but it's usually that cathartic release that comes from opening the psoas. Yeah, I think I've been there too. (laughs) (laughs) But that's good though. That's good to know. And it's interesting about like working your glutes that that is the grounding muscle for that. Like I didn't know that. Like I, I mean, I've always like tried to work glutes. It's so important obviously for like physique and whatnot. And like just general strength training and being able to do like compound movements and these different things. But that's interesting. It's related to the soul like that. Yeah. Well, if you think about it just anatomically, like where our glutes are, they're like the base of our pelvis, right? 
So they're supporting our ability to be strong in our core. It's supporting our posture. And I don't know if you've ever read this book or heard of it, but it's called The Body Mind or The Mind Body. I can't remember, but I think Body Mind. And it's basically goes through all these different parts of your body. And you actually can know someone's story and a lot about their personality by just seeing their musculature and how they hold themselves. You know, like if you see someone with very rounded shoulders or rounded in the back, oftentimes that's a, you know, there might be some depression there or definitely insecurities. And that roundiness is kind of, they're caving in around their heart. So they're very much in like a protective stance. So you can see this in all different parts of the body and it all kind of symbolizes different emotions and different holding patterns. So bringing it back to anxiety, what does anxiety look like then from that body standpoint? Definitely the tight hips and the exaggerated lower back curves, lordosis is what it's called. I also would definitely see it in the shoulders rounding as well because a lot of anxiety, the symptoms is in the chest, right? When people are experiencing like panic or just a lot of overwhelm, a lot of times it feels like there's a weight on your chest. So you're trying to kind of sink back from that weight. And to me, those two things are a pretty good sign that someone might be struggling with that. Right. So when you're sitting down and working, knowing all of this physiology, how do you sit? Do you have a standing desk or like, what do you recommend for everybody who works nine to five or is even an entrepreneur, but actually sits a lot and that's just part of their life? Yeah, I, for better or worse, I can't sit still for that long. (laughs) It might be my anxiety or it just, I naturally just need to get up and move. So I would say very simple, easy advice is every 30 minutes to an hour, get up and move. Whether that's just around your house, it's going to grab water. Maybe it's really being strategic as to when you schedule your workout during the day. But yeah, for me, it's constantly getting up and moving and shaking it out. I keep a foam roller in my living room. So I get down on the ground and start rolling out different parts of my body, like all different times of the day. I also love to throw my laptop up on like a higher table. So it acts as a standing desk. That's really helpful to me too. But I think it's just being aware of how much time you're staying in one position because it's that repetitiveness that really kind of locks us into a certain posture. Yeah. So the standing desks are great, but one criticism of them is that is, you know, if you stand for eight hours, it's not any better than sitting for eight hours because you're still keeping your joints and your muscles in the same position. So it's about moving, not necessarily not sitting, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And I've never actually stood behind a standing desk for eight hours. So I don't have the personal experience of that. But I would definitely imagine any repetitive movement for an extended period of time could be detrimental. Yeah. Something that I found helpful lately is I actually sit on the floor when I'm studying or doing work at home. And so I'll put my computer or my books or whatever on the coffee table. And so sitting on the floor or even like on a pillow or different things like that, you actually move way more. So like, you know, you're cross-legged and then your legs are out straight and then one leg is up. And so that's actually very, very helpful for me and really gets into my muscles and hips and joints. 
It's funny you say that because I actually, I definitely sit on the ground all the time. Often I even eat on the ground. Yeah. And to me, I actually, I think I focus better there because I feel more grounded. So I don't even think about it so much in a, this is better physically for me, but mentally, I think I do my best work if I'm (laughs) literally grounding (laughs) and being on the floor. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I find there's something like childlike about it and almost like innocent about it that I just really like. Like it just feels different from going to sit at a desk. I don't know if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. There's an element of safety and there's an element of play and yeah, it just feels, it feels like there's more freedom. Yeah, exactly. So going into nutrition with anxiety, do you like, what are things that types of food that you should try and kind of not ignore, but you know, decrease not to bring up like anxiety episodes or anxious feelings, thoughts, all that type of thing? Yeah. So that's such a good question. And I think nutrition absolutely has the power to help heal anxiety. But I do think it's very, it is dependent on each person, right? There's definitely a a unique piece to it for each person. But the things across the board that I see is definitely cut out caffeine. I think that, you know, adding synthetic stimulants into your system when you're already overstimulated just is setting you up to have anxiety. So that's the first one. The second one is water, being extremely hydrated. If you think about water, it's very fluid. And when you think about anxiety, it's very rigid. So really just that metaphor in itself, if you can bring more fluid within your body, that's going to be a great recipe to move away from anxiety. So those two are really big. And then I also find sugar is definitely something that sets off anxiety. And staying away from really refined sugars is huge. And especially like paying attention to the time of day. So I know for me, I transition to a very much high fat diet. So I don't eat any grains or I mean, I do have dark chocolate here and there, so I can't say that I never have sugar. (laughs) But getting the grains out of my system was a game changer and really upping the fat. Because a lot of times, people with anxiety or panic, they almost feel like a diabetic where their blood sugar just drops so fast. And that feeling can really stimulate the experience of anxiety. So increasing the fat really helps just regulate your energy throughout the day. I think also, like I said, timing of food is so, so big. I try never to go longer than four hours without having something in my system that just keeps me very, very steady throughout the day. Always eating breakfast. I think breakfast is one of the most important meals of the day. It's also my favorite. Not to say that I'm not a believer in intermittent fasting, but if you're really heavily struggling with anxiety, getting breakfast in your system is a good idea. So those would be my top nutritional suggestions. Thank you. That's amazing. I think that the fat is really important when it comes to supporting the nervous system. You want to be getting enough healthy fat and enough EFAs, which is essential fatty acids. And to all of the clients that I have and friends and family, when I see that come up for them, that is what I recommend is get your omega-3s in, get your cod liver oil or fish oil or flaxseed oil, however you want to take it. But you need to be getting in the healthy fats because it helps your nervous system 
run better. It's like fuel for your nervous system, essentially. And so if you're you know, not taking these in and you're eating a high processed diet of junk food and poor quality meat and grains and sugar, like your system is just in overdrive. And it, it takes a while for you to actually come back from that, I find. Yeah, I would totally agree. And especially if that processed food is in your system shortly before going to bed, I feel like it completely interrupts your hormones and the whole process of melatonin and really your sleep cycle gets messed up and sleep is crucial for like healing, healing anxiety and really getting on a sleep schedule. So definitely the high fat regulate your hormones too. Yeah. That's a big one too. And regulating your hormones helps you feel better. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So that definitely plays a part into anxiety. Yeah, I actually just created a one-page cycle syncing PDF, I guess. And it talks about all the different nutrients and food that you need during different phases of your cycle because of your hormones and because of the way you feel. And everything's connected. So it's pretty amazing when you can start putting the pieces together like that. Yeah, definitely. And I love that you're doing that kind of work because I I also have ambitions of diving deeper into... I think I mentioned to you before the book, The Woman Code. And it's much about that work. And I would love to bring that in a bit more with working with anxiety because I think that would be helpful as well. Because I notice certain phases in my cycle seem to make me more prone to anxiety as well. Oh, interesting. So would that be the teal phase that you experience that or? It's usually the phase right before I get my period. Yeah, that's that one. That's what I was going to say. Usually around like ovulation, everyone feels really good. You know, you have a ton of energy, your libido is really high and all of these things, right? That makes sense because you have a bit of a drop after that and then you, before you menstruate. So yeah, it's interesting because women are not the same every single day in a 30-day span and like physically and in all the different ways. So because of that, why would we expect ourselves to be like that and feel the same every day and do the same things? So there's different things you can do to kind of like support your different phases. Yeah, definitely. I I so believe in that. And I think also a lot of us do that organically and we we just don't have the information to know why we're doing that, you know? So I, I find myself definitely, you know, the more compassion I bring in for myself, the easier it's for me to transition through my different phases of the cycle and and be okay if one week my body really just wants to walk and the next week I really want to go to the gym and lift heavy and then the rest of the time I want yoga. It's like it brings acceptance having that knowledge of, oh, like my body really is going through all of these transitions. Yeah, that's exactly it. And it comes with a bit of grace, I think. And And that's the nice part about it. And just like you said, like, yoga and then the gym and like it's okay to do different things but it's very different from how most people see it right now but I do think it is changing. I think so too and I think grace is such a a beautiful powerful word and I think we could all have more of it and would definitely feel more connected if we did. Yeah (laughs) easier said than done but yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This was like such a great discussion about anxiety in the body and the mind, what to do with it and how to move past it. Just like you're just a wealth of knowledge. 
Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, this is really fun. And I'm, I'm excited to continue following your work and learning more about cycle syncing. I think it could help so many women with anxiety. Yeah, I have the PDF up on my website. So if anyone wants to download it, they can go there or just message me about questions about it. But yeah, definitely. And thank you for that support. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for tuning in to episode 13. I hope you got a lot out of this one and you subscribe and share it with your friends and family, especially people who are going through other mental health issues, especially anxiety, because that is what I was mainly focused on and which is just like so prone with society at this point, especially young people. And it's really good for people to get information and realize that there are healthy ways through it and there are ways to heal from it and just to manage it better in general. So thank you for listening. And I look forward to having you back next week.